Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Hope you're doing as good as I am. Heck, if I was any better, I'd have to be twins. Thank you for stopping by. Being as we just took a look at uh, an odd case last week involving New York's electric chair, and during the research for that one, I stumbled on another one that happened around, oh, just a few years later. I figured we might just go ahead and spend one more week with Edwin Davis and his torn rotator cuff. This country has at times had polar opposite views on the death penalty, and not so much anymore, but years ago, even back when I was a little feller, it was especially a big controversy when a woman had a date with the executioner. Now, that didn't happen often, and still don't bend that women account for less than 5% of death sentences in this country, and less than 1% of those ever get escorted into the death chamber to leave feet first. Now, I'm not saying that female killers can't be any less brutal than a man can when it comes to offing somebody. They've just been statistically less likely to die even when their male co-defendant does. It does seem like there's been a turning around in that the last few years because it doesn't seem to be big news stories when a woman's executed like it used to be. A good example of that would be the execution of Susan Montgomery a while back didn't seem to make near the news that Eileen Wernos or Carla Faye Tucker did years ago. Now we've been through some of the history of the use of the old Sparky by the state of New York through the early years, but like I say, I found this one to add to it that not many folks are aware of. So come on in, set a spell, and let me tell you about it. Now, Martha Place, as she was known at the time, was born Martha Garretson in Reddington Township, New Jersey in 1849. Martha claimed to be widowed and had a son from that marriage before she met Brooklyn insurance adjuster William Place. Martha's son had been left in the care of his own uncle while she went to work for William, who also just happened to be widowed. He lived at 598 Hancock Street with his daughter Ida. At first, Martha was working as William's housekeeper, but she became his wife within a year of meeting him, and as we all know, we wouldn't be here talking about it if it wasn't. There were problems from the get-go. To hear Martha tell it, every one of William's relatives were always treating her bad right from the start. They wouldn't have a thing in the world to do with her. Then William wasn't about to let her son live with them. 
Martha's son, Ross, who we just mentioned, was from Martha's first husband, whose last name was Savakul. Of course, that was an unhappy marriage for Martha, too, and they separated after four years. Her first husband, for all anybody knew, took off and headed out west once he was gone and didn't come back. That's how Martha figured she was a widow, unless she maybe knew something somebody else didn't know and he was actually buried in her backyard or something. When he left, however he left, he left Martha in a pitiful state. That, combined with William's refusal to allow Ross to live with him, left Martha no choice, as she put it, but to arrange for Ross to be adopted by wealthy harness manufacturer William Aschenbach in Valsburg, New Jersey. The Aschenbachs were all over it because they had just lost a son, and in memory of their deceased son, the Aschenbachs changed his name from Ross Savakul to William Aschenbach Jr., which was another thing that plucked Martha's nerves like a six-finger banjo player. That wasn't all she complained about. William's daughter Ida was a constant unending pain in her backside. From Martha's view, Ida was a sneaky little troublemaker that was about as disrespectful as a child could get and didn't appreciate the first thing Martha did for. Of course, Ida had her view of that Martha was pretty much a hapless simp that couldn't do anything in the world right. The more Martha tried to correct the child, the more Ida defied everything about her. And the jelly that went into this BS donut came in the form of William, who, according to Martha, continually indulged Ida's spoiled, rotten attitude. So I guess nobody was on Team Martha, and her life was a great big ball of misery from dawn to dusk every day. At least that's the way she told it. What Martha failed to consider was that Ida was a 17-year-old who was still grieving for her mother and might not have been a breath of fresh air to live with. In other words, the adult might have just wanted to try one time being an adult here. Martha was known to act like a drill sergeant with the attitude that she was in charge and with everybody as a rung or two below her on the rank ladder and were always wrong on top of it. If they had any questions about that, they could ask her and she'd be glad to set them straight. She saw everybody as a pay grade or two below and in constant need of some type of discipline. And she had a raging temper to top it all off. Things went one way. That was her way, and anybody that couldn't toe the mark paid hell for it. Even her own brother said that she had the worst most vile temper that he'd ever seen and it all started when she wrecked her carriage when she was in her 20s leaving a big hen apple on her head about the size of a cantaloupe it is known that Ida did sure enough give Martha a hard time sometimes which was perfectly normal for a teenager especially one that was still missing her mother gotta wonder about now just what Martha thought was gonna happen when she married William but by 1898 the place family probably by that time afraid to even look in Martha's general direction, had been living on Hancock Street for quite a few years, and since Martha got promoted to wife and was then wealthy for the first time in her life, hired a maid named Hilda Yance to do the housework. Can you imagine trying to clean house for somebody like Martha? That had to have been pure torment. It was February 7th, 1898, when Hilda rose from her quarters and went to work and noticed that something was about half a bubble off plum. 
The first thing was that there was an overpowering smell of carbolic acid stuffing up the whole house, and Ida, who was normally a teenager, all over the place like teenagers are, was nowhere to be seen. William had already headed off to work in Manhattan to make a few fives and wouldn't be back till about 5.30 that evening. After a few minutes, Hilda's eyes were burning so bad the tears were running down her face from the vapors of whatever was stinking up the house. Barely able to see at that point, she was then tore a new one by Martha for not working fast enough. And that was about the only thing that was normal that morning. According to Hilda, Martha said that she didn't smell nothing and then a bit later, noticing that Hilda looked like she had a sunburn on her face from whatever it was, finally admitted that she did. Martha said, why, yes, I do notice something now that you mention it, but I don't think it's carbolic, Hilda. I think it's acid, not an acid smell. It smells more like a gas leak. Well, that's about the time Hilda should have gathered a split tail gown around the rear end and headed for the swamp. I sure would have. I mean, I don't play around no gas leaks. Hilda then noticed that Martha started acting like she was about half paranoid about something, but her voice went to a monotone sound. Knowing Martha's temper like she did, Hilda thought that she better just shut up and go on about her business. Besides, the sooner she was done, the sooner she could get away from the whack-a-doodle and go back to her room. The whole neighborhood had noticed that the screaming matches between Martha and William were coming more often, and they really got a kick out of the time William hauled Martha up before a magistrate for threatening Ida's life. That what Hilda didn't know was that if she had kept on with Martha about the house stinking, she just might have been carried out of the house in a bag on a gurney feet first, but we'll get to that part in a minute. Instead, out of the wild blue yonder, Martha told Hilda the, the family was leaving Brooklyn to live in New Jersey. It was short notice, and because of that, Martha would give her a month's salary and a bonus if she had her belongings out of the house by 5 p.m. that day. Martha, of course, had to say that that was William's idea and that if it was up to her, Hilda would be leaving with nothing but the clothes on her back. So the day went from half-bubble-off plum to plum-off-the-rails crazy in a matter of a few hours. Before Hilda left, Martha told her that she was was to get Martha's bank book from Brooklyn Savings Bank and arrange for Martha's trunk to be sent to New Jersey by putting it on a train. Hilda got an express man to pick up and deliver it to the station. And while she was out getting the bank book, I wonder if she ever asked herself why nobody else had a trunk packed if the whole family was moving. But anyway, Hilda then arranged for somebody to come back and get her stuff out of the house before Sergeant Martha went full moon bat. With all that being done, she left the house and didn't look back. Well, not yet, anyway. When William got home at about 5.30, he did what he usually did, which was walk through the front door. I suspect by this time, he was well beyond yelling, Honey, I'm home, and was probably thinking about where he might hide out until bedtime. Martha, on the other hand, had been waiting for him to show up because she had a pretty good idea where he was going and how he's fixing to get there. William had no idea that Hilda had been sent stepping, so as he walked through his own front door, Martha put the bums rush on him by running down the steps, holding an axe over her head like she was about to split a log. The first thing William thought was that he'd better get out of there and warn his daughter not to even come in the house. 
But about the time he reached the front door and reached for the knob, Martha whacked him through the back with an axe. And he said that her eyes were glossed over and black with hate, and she wasn't done. She raised the axe again, and that's when everything faded to black. William was hurt pretty bad and couldn't get through the door, but even though he didn't don't remember much of it, the neighbors did hear him screaming for help. Norris Weldon and his wife, who lived next door, heard a bunch of screaming and what sounded like an awful gut-wrenching moans, and somebody was screaming murder over and over again. The Weldons, knowing Martha's temper like they did, thought that that ain't good, so Mr. Weldon ran out of his house to find the nearest police officer. And patrolman Harvey McCauley just happened to be lucky enough to be walking down Hancock Street while all that was happening. Officer McCauley told Mr. Weldon to go to the nearest phone booth, which was at the local pharmacy, and called the police. Then he proceeded over to the places, uh, well, place, where he busted down the front door and dang near fell over William, who was laying right inside unconscious in a puddle of his own blood. Mr. Weldon made it over to the phone and called police, who sent more police, along with two doctors from St. Mary's Hospital. They were doctors Fitzsimmons and Gormley. Then came Captain Ennis, Detectives Becker and Mitchell. First thing they all noticed, besides William spread out on the floor bleeding, was a strong smell of natural gas. Doctors went to work on William by dragging him out to the carriage and rushing him off to St. Mary's. The police all ran upstairs to the front bedroom to open the windows to keep a house from being blown up, and they almost again fell over another body. There's a woman wrapped in a quilt with a pillowcase pulled over her head. It was Martha who had apparently now turned on herself because it was also Martha that had took a monkey wrench and twisted the two gas valves open so, the, so hard that they couldn't be shut off. Mr. Weldon stepped in for a long enough to identify who was wrapped in the quilt as Martha, who was laying there playing dead. So when he, he did that, the police sealed the place off from people to keep them being blown to smear the rings. Ida's boyfriend, the potential fiancé, Edward Schneidecker, did squeeze by and was pretty much in a panic to find out if Ida was okay. He told Captain Ennis who he was and asked about Ida. At that point, nobody knew anything about Ida. That was until he took him up to Ida's bedroom where they found the door locked. That was another one they had to break down. Officer McCauley guarded the door to keep poor Edward back while the others ran into the room. And what they found was horrific. They found the source of the acid smell that Hilda was asked about earlier. Ida had been stuffed under her own mattress dead with her face horribly disfigured because somebody had thrown concentrated phenol all over her face. All over, as a matter of fact. And they were thinking that that somebody was Martha. If she'd made it, though, that Ida would have been both disfigured and completely blind. They soon found out that she had made it through that, but Martha figured that she hadn't done enough and finished the job by throwing a pillow over what was left of the poor girl's face and sitting on it till she was gone. Ida had pretty much covered in bruises all over her front, back, both arms, chest, neck, and head. The smell of phenol that made Hilda look like she had a sunburn floor, a floor below was so strong the officers were fixing to drop over. I guess about now you're probably just wondering just what carbolic acid is. Today it's used in hair dye, among other things, but back then it was sold in powder form and mixed with water as an antiseptic. 
It was pretty much used like Lysol is today. It was also called phenol. The problem with it was that if you mixed it too strong, it would literally burn you like you were on fire. And apparently Martha knew that because Ida had been doused with the concentrated carbolic acid, which meant that the water was boiling when the powder was poured in, and then it kept boiling to thicken it up after that. No wonder the whole house stunk. It's a wonder Martha survived that. Detectives Becker and Mitchell figured that they'd better do a search, which they did while pathologist Alvin Henderson and coroner John Delap took a look at Ida's body. It was Dr. Henderson that noticed that blood-stained pillowcase and was reeking of phenol and realized that, well, it was the first one, I guess, to realize that Ida had been doused with phenol and then polished off with the pillow. There wasn't any doubt whatsoever that Ida had been murdered, and they had a pretty good idea who did it. By that time, William and Martha were both laid up at St. Mary's Hospital. I hope for the love of Mike, not too close to each other. Martha snapped out of playing dead pretty quick. William stayed in critical condition for quite a few days. Police were only able to question him for little bits of time when he was conscious. After they pieced together exactly what he was telling them, they sent him a 24-hour guard to stand outside the hospital room, dare somebody to try something, especially Martha, since her room was only two floors above his, and she was already wanting to know exactly where he was. I guess because she wasn't done yet, or maybe she thought that she needed to make funeral arrangements and preparations for a big got-that-money party. I don't know. Folks, we're nowhere near done. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Captain Ennis, Detective Becker, and Mitchell, and Assistant District Attorney McGuire questioned William once he was able to see straight. They wanted to know why Martha done it. According to William... He was about done with Martha, and he'd told her so. Martha, who'd never done anything wrong in her life, had run up some huge bills, all the while rat-holding herself about $12,000. That's worth about $40,000 in today's money, folks. She hadn't, hadn't paid any of her bills and wasn't about to. Just like always, rules were for plebes and saps of the world and didn't apply to Martha. The previous Saturday, they had headed out over the bills and Ida's attitude again. That's when William found out about the bills backing up and cut Martha's money off so he could use it to pay her bills. All that managed to do was make her madder than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. Martha stewed about it all Saturday night and on, just started round two on bright and early Sunday morning. Now, come Monday morning, she still wasn't done yet, and they hit round three before breakfast. He said, my wife threatened me. Martha told William that she wanted the money and that if she did, he didn't give it to her, she was going to make it cost him ten times as much. William was still laying on his back, healing up, when he, they finally had to tell him that Martha had murdered Ida. He immediately said that if she killed Ida, nothing you could do to punish Martha would punish her enough. D.A. McGuire had an idea of just how to get the best bang for his buck. Sing Sing, Auburn, and Denimora prisons all had something tailor-made for just that occasion. And our old friend, state electrician Edwin Davis, was by this, at this point an expert switch puller. First, the DA had to have Martha charged with first-degree murder, attempted murder, and 
attempted suicide, which was a crime in New York State back then. Martha was stretched out in her hospital bed, acting like she didn't know where she was and what had happened. That Oscar-winning performance only lasted about as long as it took for detectives to pull together enough evidence to charge her. Just to keep William safe, they yanked her up and moved her to the Raymond Street Jail to await trial. After listening to her wax-full barking moon bat for a few days, doctors and detectives agreed that she was full of it and started ignoring her. Their attitude was, if she killed herself, so what? That would save them a whole heap of trouble and money. But she was still stubborn enough to keep rolling her eyes and writhing around, and every now and again coming up to her senses and long enough to ask where her husband was. Since nobody would tell her anything by that time, she was probably thinking that he just might still be alive, and that'd be the reason she wanted to know where he was, so she could get to him and shut him up permanently. According to Detective Becker, she had a cruel face, a cruel heart, and she was a great actress. Beginning on July 8th, 1898, Martha's trial was as popular as the Ringling Brothers' Barnum and Bailey Circus. Judge Hurd presided. D.A. McGuire prosecuted while Martha retained New Jersey lawyer Howard McSherry and New York's Robert Van Enderstein to fight a hopeless case. Depending on the jury, Martha faced life in prison or death if they convicted her. With that in mind, Martha's lawyers chose the strategy carefully. They'd claim that she just didn't do it. D.A. McGuire begged to differ with that. His case was as solid as a rock, and he knew it. Hilda was sent away so that she couldn't interfere with anything. Martha had got her bank book, packed her trunk, and Hilda had sent it to New Jersey on a train where New York didn't have any jurisdiction. Now, back then, it was a good bit harder to get extradition done. Most of the time, if the accused person hadn't caused any trouble in their jurisdiction, folks just wouldn't bother with it. What really iced Martha's big murder cake was that she'd done it all and then went on about her daily chores without so much care in the world while Ida lay dead under her own mattress on her floor in the bedroom. But that still wasn't enough. Martha put together an ambush on her husband with an axe, almost hacked him to death, and then faked suicide attempt. And as far as D.A. McGuire was concerned, all that was was a big ruse to try to get sympathy from folks to cover her tracks. Martha, sitting there unrepentant and being all cold and icy, just made D.A. McGuire's job that much easier. The way the jurors saw it, she was exactly the type of person who'd commit the crime she was dragged into the courtroom to be tried for. Reporters didn't have any love to give her either. They wrote that she was rather tall and spare with a pale, sharp face, her long pointed nose and sharp chin along with her prominent thin lips and receding forehead reminds one of a rat or maybe Satan. Despite hiring high dollar mouthpieces, Martha pretty much managed to sink her own ship after only an hour on the witness stand. After already telling them that she had the axe in case William attacked her, she now told the court that she'd used it only after he provoked her. She wasn't smart enough to realize that that wasn't I didn't do it, or even self-defense. As far as her throwing concentrated phenol all over Ida's face before smothering her with a pillow goes, Martha said that Ida provoked her into doing that too. The way she saw it, it was her victim's own fault for provoking her, and she hadn't thrown the phenol intended to disfigure or kill. 
And apparently she didn't mean to smother Ida with the nearest thing she could find, which just happened to be Ida's own pillow either, I guess. All of that, and the DA hadn't even questioned her yet. I imagine her lawyers were in severe need of a couple of stiff drinks by then. When she was cross-examined by D.A. McGuire, she refused to answer questions about where she got to Fenal, how long she'd had it, or why the original container had up and vanished from the house. According to Martha, she'd poured it in a cup before Ida started provoking her. But no phenol stained cup was ever found either. I imagine her lawyers had told her to dummy up because if she did admit to having it for any length of time, that would be premeditation. At that point, she may as well have already been in line at the death chamber, running past everybody else, shoving people out of the way, waving her arms in Edwin Davis's face, yelling, shock me first. The star prosecution witness was none other than her arch enemy, her own husband, William. There wasn't any reason anybody could come up with that he'd lie in her favor, and it turned out that he sure as heck didn't. Pathologist Alvin Henderson stepped up and told everybody about the medical evidence of Martha's mother in poor defenseless Ida after throwing phenol in her face while holding up the pillowcase with Ida's bloody face print on it. Then Hilda Yance testified that the whack-a-doodle day that she had with Martha on the day of the murder. Captain Ennis, Patrolman McCauley, Detectives Becker and Mitchell, the Weldons, and Ida's sweetheart, Everett Schottecker, all came in and took the blade to Martha. She sat there through it all, acting like nobody said anything at all that proved she had touched a single hair on anybody's head. After deliberating less than four hours, likely just to get free lunch, the jury delivered the verdict. Guilty as charged and recommended no mercy. After... That judge heard nearly tripped over his robe to get back to pass the sentence, which came in on July on June 12th, 1898. Martha sat there like she didn't even hear it. Judge Heard said her first execution date is a formality, of course, since New York law granted one mandatory appeal for condemned prisoners, but after that they were on their own, and I expect that $1,200 Martha had saved was looking a little thin in the skin by then. There hadn't been a woman executed in the state since Roxalana Druce in 1887. Ms. Druce hung on the gallows strangling for 15 minutes before she finally died. Governors and appeals courts had granted every woman condemned to die of reprieve since. No governor since David Hill was about to face the risk of another botched female execution. In fact, her death was one of the reasons that New York had went to the electric chair in the first place. Since the electric chair formerly but came into use, two women had been condemned to electrocution and both were granted reprieves. Lizzie Holliday had been sentenced to death on June 21, 1894, and Governor Roswell Flowers commuted her sentence, sending her to the Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane, where in 1906 she murdered her psychiatric nurse Nellie Wicks by stabbing her over 200 times with a pair of scissors for Lizzie telling her that she was being let go from the hospital and wouldn't be no longer be her nurse. Now, Maria Barbella had been sentenced to death in 1895 for taking a straight razor and carving a second smile on her husband's throat. Her first death sentence was overturned on appeal, and a retrial began in November of 1896 where she claimed to have been raped by her abusive lover. The jury acquitted her, and she danced out the front doors of the courtroom a free woman. 
All of that went on while 19 men had been hanged and 45 electrocuted since Roxolana Druce's hanging. Despite it all, there was still public opposition to her being electrocuted. Some even disputed the state's right to electrocute her at all. Governor Theodore Roosevelt begged to differ with all of them, saying that it was nothing but a bunch of mawkish sentimentality. New York's courts didn't have any love for Martha either, refusing everything she threw at them. Frank Black, the 32nd governor of New York, didn't have nothing to say on her case while he was on his way out the door, which is normally when clemency is granted to avoid a political backlash. His successor was none other than Theodore Roosevelt. If Martha hoped Governor Roosevelt had changed his mind, she was sorely disappointed. On March 15, 1899, only five days before her scheduled execution, he turned her down flat, writing that the only case of capital punishment which has occurred since the beginning of my term as governor was for wife murder, and I refused to consider the appeals then made to me because I'm convinced that the man really had done the deed and was sane. In that case, a woman was killed by a man. In this case, a woman was killed by another woman. The law makes no distinction as to sex in such a crime. This murder was one of peculiar or particular deliberation and atrocity. I declined to interfere with the course of the law. Now, unless something came out of the blue in the form of a miracle, Martha Place's place in history with the electric chair was about to be written. While passing the days that she had left at Sing Sing's death house, Martha's behavior became full bark and moon bat again. Her priest had done as much as he could to calm her down, but she was st still becoming completely unhinged on several occasions. With the priest's continued ministering and a course of Bible studies, he did manage to calm her down when it was time for her to ride the lightning. On March 20th, 1899, exactly 58 weeks after the murder, she met her fate calmly and without hysterics. Her demeanor in the death chamber was much the same as her trial, cold and indifferent. Unlike male convicts, her hair was elaborately styled rather than trimmed all over, except for the big bald spot shaved in the top of it for the electrode. Never having electrocuted a woman before, Edwin Davis decided to place the leg electrode on her ankle rather than her calf. There were only 12 witnesses there to watch her die. She entered the death chamber just before 11 a.m., dressed in black and carrying her Bible. She wore a white cord around her neck. This, she said, had been what she'd been planning to wear if she'd been acquitted or even paroled. It took only three minutes for Mr. Davis and female prison officers to place the electrodes, buckle in the heavy leather restraints, and they sat calmly at this, as this was done, saying, God help me, God have mercy on me, is what she was saying. At 11.01, Mr. Davis pulled the switch again. This sent 1,760 volts through Martha's body. Both the chair and Mr. Davis had come a long way, I guess, since William Kemmler. And this time, there was no problem at all. A second joke was sent through Martha just for good measure. Before the female doctor at Sing and Sing Sing's own doctor, Irvin made the official checks. According to reporters, she died almost instantly. 
the way the police family saw it. They should have threw concentrated phenol all over about 12 hours before the execution because it didn't happen fast enough. Dr. Irvin later said that it was the best execution he'd ever seen. After the autopsy, which is required by the state law since, though it was a legal one, it was still a homicide. She was then chunked in a pine box and returned to her native New Jersey, where she is still buried in the East Millstone Cemetery. Though it's often mistaken that Ruth Snyder was the first woman to meet old Sparky, Martha was actually the first woman to be electrocuted in the chair. He was also the first, or she was also the first electrocuted execution witnessed by a female female reporter. I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't speak anymore. I'll get over it. Uh, New York Sun reporter Kate Swan was sent by no less than Joseph Pulitzer himself to cover the story. She was the last female journalist to do so until 1920. Martha's brother, Peter Gerritsen, then living in New Jersey, said, When I reached Jersey City this morning, I tried to go over to Brooklyn to see Maddie, but I couldn't get up there. There isn't the slightest doubt in my mind that she was insane. All these stories that she was jealous of Ida must be wrong. Why, she loved that little girl. I reckon she just had a funny way of showing it, didn't she? But Martha Place became New York's 46th electrocution since they installed a chair. After Martha Place, New York executed very few women and not all of them for murder. Ethel Rosenberg, for example, was executed for giving nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. The Rosenberg case is still one that people argue about their innocence or guilt to this day. By the way, it took five two-minute jolts of electricity before Ethel was declared dead, which must have been absolutely horrific. And that does it. I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that had to be told. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to follow us, please, to get notified of new episodes. Come join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast group, where we talk about everything Appalachian or whatever else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I'll see you then.